0: Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life
1: uh, Educational Offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And if you don't know it, we would like for you to know that we have a podcast.
2: We do have a podcast. It's called In Between and it's on our accessible on our website as well as on Apple Podcasts. And I'm going to say it again. I keep saying I'm going to upload it to Spotify and I just haven't. Um, <laughs> But it will be there um should
1: i make a, a note
2: why don't you remind me put the third thing to remind me of on your list <laughs> bill has a running list of things to remind me to do this week um anyways it's been fun and sometimes we have folks on our podcast uh, next time we'll have or in a couple weeks we'll have jeff mcdonald which will be fun and you can join us at, it's downloaded on thursdays it's been fun it's a way for us to process how we're going to address the next sunday Mm-hmm. And um, it's called In Between because it's in between Bill and me. It's in between the no longer and the not yet. And broadly speaking, in between is where love occurs. So, that was
1: so you know, one of the things that has been kind of a benefit of the stay at home for me, mm. I got um, a new Apple TV
2: uh-huh.
1: because I wanted to get.
2: You want to watch Disney,
1: Hamilton. Uh, I okay. wanted to get Disney Plus so I could show it to Sherry as a part of her recovering from surgeries kind of thing, which has gone really well. And so I've, ex- I've been playing around with it and I got to YouTube, which I had largely forgotten about. And you know, you can put a search into YouTube for Richard Rohr, uh-huh. for Jim Finley.
2: For Bill Curley. For Bill Curley. I
1: did that, and you know what came up? <laughs> what? You. You said I came up. <laughs> you came up. I think that's funny. <laughs> so um, I put in a search for Michael Morwood, and um, I found, and I want to go to YouTube and do this, Michael Morwood has a about a half an hour program on YouTube. It was done somewhere in Pennsylvania, and it's called Revisioning re-envisioning the second half of life. The sound quality is good, the video quality is good. And it was so delightful to get to see him up close yeah. like that and have the, have the remembrance of his, when he was here on this stage. Yeah. He's,
2: yeah, he packs a good punch.
1: He he's so bright
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so, so solid. Mm-hmm. He's got so much integrity and smart and I, I noticed that he stood there and spoke for half an hour and virtually never looked down at a note. Well, I be there. I
2: remember you saying that, that that was such a, such a astounding quality to you that he for could me. talk for an hour without notes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And offers really good, solid content. Yeah. So I'm telling you this because Michael Moorwood is going to be with us in a webinar on Thursday night, August the 27th, starting at seven o'clock. Mm-hmm. We don't know how long it's gonna last. It's free, you don't have to pay anything for it, but you do have to register. And you can do that by going to the Ordinary Life website, Mm -hmm. clicking on the menu item called Events. Moorwood's event will be the first thing that comes up. Push the registration button, give the information that you need. You don't need a um, Zoom app to watch it. I think it may be better, but I don't know. You don't need that.
2: You don't need it. You can access it on easy to download too. But
1: you do need to save the email that you will get back because it will have the link that you can use to get on to the the site on, mm-hmm. on that evening. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna use the same platform in October when we have Jackie Lewis here, but that event will be most all day on a Saturday and then this time on a Sunday coming up. I'm really excited. I'm really excited about it, yes. and I'm going to get to talk to Michael tomorrow night. He and I have arranged to have a one-on-one meeting mm-hmm. on Zoom, and it will be Monday night 7:30 here and Tuesday morning 8:30 his him. time the yeah. next day. Yeah, so he's just ahead of us.
2: Yeah, be far ahead of us
1: in every way. It's kind of cool. Yeah,
2: <laughs> someone to look up to or over to. <laughs>
1: You might wonder how we pay for this stuff.
2: We, well, we get wonderful donations from our class members and other folks who have contributed to funds for speakers as well as to general ordinary life funds to give away to nonprofits in the Houston area that are largely serving underserved folks and populations. Um, and if you want to do that, you can go onto our website again and click on the donate button, it'll take you to a form. And on that form, in the memo, you just need to write Ordinary Life and it'll get to us. So thank you so much.
1: And you and are- the, and,
2: you... and John wants us to say, there's also a Curly Endowment that is what undergirds a lot of the speakers that we have, um, the Curly Speaker Series. So Jackie Lewis, for example, is of the Curly Endowment speakers. And that also can um, receive funds to keep going in perpetuity beyond bill
1: I think that um, it may be an advantage that we can do these webinars because I'm going to explore, uh, uh, beginning pretty soon, the possibility of getting uh, Nadia Boseweaver, Jim Finley. Um, I think that there's possibility that we could pull that off and we can do more of these if it's successful. Tim tells me we already have close to 100 people signed up yeah. for Michael and we will have more, I hope. We, there's no limit on how many we can have. Mm-hmm. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so I, mentioning John and, and Tim and Olivia uh, Watson and William Budge, just let you know that we don't do this by ourselves and all this technical stuff, Somebody else does.
2: Which also means if something goes wrong, we can blame them, right? Oh, I do. Okay.
1: <laughs> I don't want to take personal responsibility or anything. Ask my wife about that. So, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, I want you to know that we are so glad that you are with us. Pajama people, mimosa people, wine and cheese people, whoever, people. wherever you, coffee people, whatever. So, um, we're beginning a new series, subseries, series uh, between the no longer and the not yet. We narrowed it down to see how we could draw from the teachings of Buddha and Jesus to see how they could guide us through, first of all, the pandemic, and then the murder of George Floyd hit, and we expanded that to deal with just this traumatic time that we're dealing with. And last week, we completed the Eightfold Path our talks about the Eightfold Path, and today we are beginning um, wh- what I first envisioned as just doing the Beatitudes in Matthew, but we're expanding that right. to do... Right. We
2: realized that we needed to get to know Jesus again.
1: We are... Uh, right. That's yeah. what we're going to do. And I think
2: it's funny that you say we completed the Eightfold Path. because you can't complete the eightfold path. But now we're all bodhisattvas. Is that what you're saying? We've taken everybody to this level of almost nirvana and we're going to tip it over the edge. Right today. Okay. Get ready
1: to jump. (laughs) So I want to begin by asking you, um, I'm going to give you a test of sorts. Uh, There's no right or wrong answer. I just want to know what is the very first reaction you have whether it is a mental image, whether it is emotional, whether it is physical, when you hear the word that I am about to say, okay? Okay. Jesus.
2: Am I supposed to answer? If you want to.
1: (laughs) I got a lot of responses back.
2: Why don't you share some of them?
1: Well, the, the, the responses I got, the, the most frequent kind of a response was people said that they had a visual image
2: mm-hmm. come
1: to mind. Mm-hmm. And I, we'll talk about that in a minute because probably the most frequent visual image people has is, is of a particular painting. But there were some people who said, uh, and I was really pleased that people said that their responses were warm uh, inclusive, um, g- gracious, and then they would acknowledge that had they been asked this question some time ago, that their reactions would have been negative. They would have, Jesus, uh, like that. And I, I have a biased sampling that I picked from. It was people who've been attending Ordinary Life right. for years. And so after thinking about it, I thought, this is not the response I expected. But then I thought, well, maybe that some of this teaching has been useful yeah. and that people have altered their understandings of yeah. Jesus. What is your response?
2: Well, I have simultaneously two, and I share this with you in our podcast. One is um, how often we use it as a swear word. Jesus Christ. Yeah. 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 And, um, and secondly, I, I almost feel sorry for Jesus. That's the feeling that comes up because I feel like he's been so boxed in to a particular image, to a particular narrative in Western Christianity, Western white Christianity. And so I wanna free that constricted image.
1: So we, we're, uh, want, we're, as I said, wanting to get into teaching the Beatitudes, whether you're a church goer or not, you know them, they're the ones that begin with blessed are the poor or poor in spirit, depending on which uh, version you read whether Matthew or Luke. And then we decided, as, as Holly said, that we wanted to expand that. And I thought, well, let's just do the whole Sermon on the Mount, those three chapters in Matthew, because they are so rich with some of Jesus' best-known sayings, the salty God mm-hmm. that you're going to do.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love that.
1: And um, so many others. But we thought that it would be useful um, to spend some time. And I stole this title from... Um, a book by Marcus Borg that we would call today's time Meeting Jesus Again for the first time. Uh, if you don't have that Marcus Borg book, um, I've, I suggest that you get it. By the way, uh, we are going to put a... Um, it's not a blog exactly, is it? A resource page.
2: Resource list of the books that we mention including poetry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. So that'll be up by the time.
2: We had that on the website a while ago, but we're just going to refresh it. We're
1: refreshing, starting all over about Mm -hmm. books. Mm -hmm. So one that I'm mentioning today, Marcus Borg's book, Meeting Jesus Again for the first time. Um, it's, it's a good book. So I want to play a video Uh, We played it in here some time ago, but it so fits this endeavor that we're trying today about meeting Jesus again for the first time. This video was done by the BBC. It's not long um, and I think it's just terrific. Yeah. Ready? Unmute the mute or whatever and here we go.
0: Jesus, can you hear me? I don't know where else to turn it. I'm desperate. I need your help. I can hear you, my son. I have always been listening. Who are you? It is I, Jesus. I heard your prayer and I've come to help you. You're not Jesus. I I am. But don't Jesus look a bit more like Oh. Oh, I see you uh you thought I'd be white. Kind of, yeah. Look, I, I don't know what to tell you. I was born in the Middle East two thousand years ago. The Bible's very clear about that. It should be pretty obvious I don't have blonde hair and blue eyes. Yes, sir. Plus, have you, have you heard my story? When I was arrested by a mob of angry government officials and beaten for a crime I didn't commit, and that shit doesn't happen to white people. And there was some confusion over who your father was. Okay, that's just racist. Sorry. It's just... You're not really what I was expecting, that's all. Would you like me to fetch white Jesus instead? Well, could you? No! There is no white Jesus. It's just me. Do you want my help or not? Yeah, I suppose so. After all, you know, black or white, we're both still Christians, right? I'm guessing now's not the time to tell you I'm Jewish.
1: Dio, I just think it's so succinct, mm-hmm. to the point.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's good. <laughs> I yeah. Hmm? That stuff doesn't happen to white people is a perfect line.
1: (laughs) So the image that shaped this young man's um, understanding of Jesus was uh, something like this one, Jesus of the Sacred Heart. There are hundreds of these depictions of Jesus Mm -hmm. and even more depictions of Mary as being Sacred Heart. Uh, images, but they um, they're everywhere and particularly in uh, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox um, iconography and paintings you you have these. Probably the most common image, and this is the one that most people had come to mind
2: mm-hmm.
1: is this painting of the head of, of Jesus, head of Christ by Warner Solomon. It's painted in 1940 Forty, and um, the Wikipedia article that I have says that it has been reproduced over half a billion times. So it's no wonder that a lot of people th- would have this image when they think of Jesus. Probably the most famous painting of Jesus is this one. This one is in a church in Milan, and it. Um, Of course, it was made even more popular by Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. (laughs) I mean, reintroduced it to a a lot of people who weren't familiar with it.
2: In pop Uh, culture, kind of, like in sort of, mm -hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah. You know what Jesus is saying in this photograph?
2: Is, what, is this what's making everyone lean away?
1: It, well, no, he's saying, hey, all you guys who want to be in the picture, come sit on this <laughs> side of the table.
2: <laughs> the, the wide-angle lens isn't long, wide yeah, enough. The,
1: really, this this yeah. is practically considered by artists in terms of perspective and everything, a really great painting.
2: Well, Leonardo da Vinci was a genius. I mean, he was he was a genius about how he spaced things and... Very intentional. Everything about this painting is intentional. You can guarantee that. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. And and he also painted this, Salvador Mundi, Savior of the World. And Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, has a great bit on this particular piece, mm. saying, uh, when he revealed it to people that the people saw it and said, Wait, doesn't that look a lot like Jimmy? <laughs> <laughs> he used somebody else as a model right. for this. Why are you wearing Jimmy's clothes? Yeah. Well anyway? it also
2: looks a very a lot like a woman, right? So
1: the, the icon that I show at the beginning of every class, the Pantocrator, is one of the earliest, not the earliest. There are, there are a few line drawings that we have that predate this, but this is a, one of the earliest full depictions of Jesus um, that, that we have. Now, a relatively new field of study called forensic anthropology, which uses methods similar to those that the police use to solve crimes. Scientists assisted by Israeli archeologists have recreated what they think is the most accurate image of Jesus. And it is this. So forensic anthropology uses cultural and archaeological data, as well as the physical biological sciences to to study different groups of people. And these scientists draw on disciplines like primatology, paleoanthropology, human osteology, which is the study of the human skeleton, and as well as other disciplines. They found two skulls in the area where Jesus lived at the time that Jesus would have lived and they led the forensic um, anthropologists to this conclusion. It's very easy to create an image of Jesus that serves our values. And it's easy for the church to shape the teachings of Jesus into things that fit our culture And I think one of the big dangers of any religion is that we are tempted to put God into our story rather than to to put ourselves into God's story. So I got to wondering what it would have been like if this image that we now know comes close to what Jesus looked like had been on the walls of the church where I grew up or if it would have made it Mm -hmm. on the walls of the church where I went up Mm -hmm. because we're pretty prone not to White people to accept black images into our hearts as our personal Lord and Savior kind yeah. of thing.
2: Not in this country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we were talking about this and um, f- how do we reframe Jesus, um, which Bill said, poor guy can't get a break framing Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, I, last I wanted to relate it to last week's talk in which we talked about spiritual dark matter. And when talking about dark matter, I found it was much easier to talk about what dark matter is not, which is also what scientists have figured out. In theology, which literally means the study of the nature of God, there are two ways to go about this, which Bill, I'm sure you're familiar with from your uh, divinity studies, but um, generally it starts with an agreement that there is a God, just like there is dark matter, but we're not exactly sure what it does. But as we know, the nature of God is also widely debated, just like the nature of dark matter. These methods of discernment are called apophatic, what God is not, and cataphatic, what God is. I'll read this quote really quickly. God is not what you imagine or what you think you understand. If you understand, you have failed. So a lot of people rest in the apophatic way of understanding God, because it's, it's much easier to understand what God is not. Um, cataphatic, as I said, is an understanding of what God is. But in this vein, we wanted to be really clear on what Jesus is not. First, Jesus is not a Christian. <laughs> Jesus is not white. He's not what was not wealthy or middle class and does not represent the establishment. So in effect, he's the exact opposite of what I appear to be. So what can that mean? That was sort of this conversation we were having. Is is Jesus for me? I read something this week that imagined Jesus would have had a very different message if his audience was primarily middle class. Remember his followers at the time of his life were Those on the outside, those who were on the fringes, those who did not belong to the establishment, and those were the folks that he spoke for. But if he was speaking to the middle class, he'd probably say something like, look y'all, you gotta lay down your need for more security and more wealth and look at all these folks who have nothing. You have enough to share so that everyone's needs are met. In this way, you lessen the suffering of the world. That's not what the gospel says because that wasn't his audience, right? I don't think Jesus was for me. I think what Jesus would have asked is, in fact, he did ask, is for us to be for him. The ethos of the Christianity that raised me taught me that Jesus was for me, that he died for me and forgave me and loved me no matter what. These things might be true, but if I stay only with that narrative, I miss the point of Jesus entirely. Because First of all, Jesus is not a personal Jesus. He was only and ever about the collective and about liberation. And when we are for Jesus, we also are about the collective. And what Western, mostly white, patriarchal Christianity did was individualize Jesus. I think Jesus was about radical transformation and liberation. He was, in effect, saying, establishment, if you don't change, you will leave all these people out and you too will be left out because you will have missed the point. And people on the bottom of the society, you are enough, you are enough. So transformation that Jesus taught about is not merely that of the individual soul, but of the world in which we can live together. This comes, that quote comes from a title of a book called Mysticism and Social Transformation. I hope this sounds a lot like inner being to you because this is essentially what Jesus is talking about. What is good for those on the edges is good for everyone. What is good for those who are considered at the bottom is good for everyone. And everything that we do is interconnected. So this concept is fueled by compassion and an idea of writing the collective consciousness. There is no such thing as an individual being so transformation to me means not changing who you are, but becoming what who you are meant to be. Jesus' life represented a kind of transformation in which he had to die to the separate self and wake up to the collective. I don't mean like collective voices of a single choir or becoming uh, an ordained rabbi and being part of... Um, a Jewish collaborative, he entered at the level of kind of like gritty outsider existence. He entered at the level of community. So he would have been like a community organizer today, you know, kind of um, galvanizing the voices of those who have been left out. But then we turned him into the establishment and that started as early as Constantine, perhaps earlier. But we have kept him in the establishment that we've, we've put Jesus in the box that we needed him to be so that Frankly, probably so we could relate to him. But we're needing, I think, to remember who and what Jesus was about. And to remember, we need a kind of diseducation or freedom from that Jesus that most of us grew up learning about.
1: You know, I'm thinking, Holly, that, um, and maybe we should devote uh, a block of our teaching to this in the next week or so when, when either one of us talks like you have just talked mm-hmm. people, some people mm-hmm. go, whoa, 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 you should not mix politics and religion. Because mm. you get into those, you know, into those areas. And I think, that one of the crucially important things for people to know about the teachings of Jesus is that during the time of Jesus, there was no division between what we call politics and religion.
2: Imagine if we did infuse politics with love. Just imagine. Just imagine.
1: imagine. But (laughs) but my point is they didn't have it then. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean,
1: religion was the political system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what he tried to reform, the political system of religion.
2: My pushback on that in this country is how is religion not our political system? Oh, it is. Yeah, so I mean, it was founded on this idea of Protestantism, but freedom of religion, but we, 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 there's really not a whole lot of separate space between, right. between the two.
1: So I think it would be helpful for us to expand on that mm-hmm. sometime.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So <laughs> in this meeting Jesus again for the first time piece, I want to read you an extended passage from a book by Michael Morwood. It's longer than I usually read something in here, but um, as I said, we're having Morewood here in a couple of weeks, and he's written 10 books on uh, subjects like this, reimagining Jesus, and he has a book which you can get on your Kindle called In Memory of Jesus, and this passage that I'm reading is from that book. This is a quote. He's talking about how people would have remembered How the disciples and early followers of Jesus would have remembered Jesus. Their remembrance would have highlighted the man, his beliefs, his readiness to die for his beliefs, and his his appeal to them to keep alive his dream of establishing the kingdom of God on earth. It would have been accompanied by a deepening conviction that death was not the end of Jesus and that the spirit of the Lord that had moved so visibly in him was now stirring and active in them. So how would Jesus want to have been remembered? It is my conviction that the Christian religion has remembered and honored Jesus wrongly for 2,000 years. It is focused on him in terms of the Christ who overcame disconnection from a heavenly God who withheld forgiveness for human sin, who refused access to his heavenly abode. The Jesus whom Peter listened to day after day had no such focus. In keeping with his Jewish roots and in fidelity to the movement of the Spirit of the Lord upon him, Jesus' concern was with the state of this world, and with people not knowing a forgiving God present to them in their everyday living and loving. He was driven by the urgent need for humanity to radically change from the destructive, divisive attitudes and practices that violated the Jewish belief that all people are created in the image of God. He urged his followers to give witness to God's presence within and among them by being neighbor to all. Jesus' message about the here and now is one that the world needs to hear today. This is why and how and for what Jesus should be remembered. Yeah, the religion that professes to remember and honor Jesus has rarely in its long history been ready to risk its survival as Jesus was ready to risk his in fearlessly and uncompromisingly demanding a social and political order based on Jesus' teaching. Instead, it has traditionally been more concerned with the next life and with controlling how people gain access to it. That's a powerful piece of writing. It
2: is essentially saying where we need to be is right here. And as you've taught so many times in here, the kingdom of heaven is here. Mm-hmm. And we create heaven or hell by the choices, by how we engage with that.
1: Well, I think that one of the key things for us to remember is that Jesus did not talk about the kingdom of heaven. Right. He talked from the kingdom of heaven.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And he invited people into that realm of reality. And that's a crucially important difference, a crucially important different way of thinking about what the Jesus story is about, because we've been conditioned to think that the kingdom is out there somewhere. You get there after you die. And Jesus is all about, no, come in come on
2: right and this is where there's like that third way jesus is not about is not about the out there kingdom of heaven jesus is not solely about individual salvation but he offers the individual a way of being of transformation to participate in this sort of collective Consciousness or well-being. of
1: oh, in, in the world, uh, calls the empowering community.
2: Right. Or uh, the beloved community. Right. right. Yeah. So I want to repeat that statement that Jesus wanted people to be for him, which really meant that we would be about everyone. He wasn't presenting a mystical path that leads to unity through personal salvation, but inviting his spe- followers, followers in general to be touched by the spirit of life. When we allow ourselves to be touched and amazed by life, we forget the self. I remember when my kids were younger, and this still happens to an extent because they're still young enough to sort of be experiencing things for the first time, how amazed they were at first experiences. I love this picture of my oldest son. He just looks in awe. (laughs) He's about three in that picture. When Caleb first sat up or took a step, or when he would cry out in ecstasy as we were driving, a tuck, mommy, a big tuck. (laughs) And I, too, became amazed at trucks. (laughs) You know, like, oh, wow, that caterpillar really is cool. And what seeing the world through my little kid's eyes allowed me to do was to be in amazement. And I think amazement is part of transformation. Amazement at at what is. Um, So this, this act of reciprocity, of the world has something to teach me and I have something to give back to the world is is the crux, I think, of Jesus' teachings. The experience and perception of experience are completely seamless in the little kid's eyes. I don't know if it's a child's kind of closeness to that seamlessness, in other words, having just emerged from literal oneness, being in the womb, that keeps them so close to the ability to be amazed for a long time, but as a mother, this pointed me back to the fact that we already exist in an embedded reality. So when I could really lean in to, to my kids' experiences of things, I could see the embedded nature of reality a little bit clearer. They're great teachers, kids are. Um, I found myself pointing out trucks on the highway and you know cool things that I'm, I wasn't noticing. I yeah. have
1: this memory, my, my son, who's uh, now a mature, wonderful. Human but still being. points
2: out trucks, right? Well,
1: no, but <laughs> one of his favorite books, and he was a, a Caleb's age, was a book or younger. Was a book called The Rattle Rattle Train, mm. and I would read it to him night after night, night after night. And so when we would go out from the house in the car, and we would sometimes see a train, uh, he would say, "Choo choo train." I would point out, "Choo choo train." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one day I was um, with a colleague of mine um, driving to seminary and Doug was not in the car. He was back at home, but my Seminary age classmate was with me, and we came to a railroad crossing. And I said, "Oh, look, a choo-choo train!"
2: And he was like, mm. uh, <laughs> "Yeah, yep. yeah." But that I, I think that's kind of what it means to have the mind of a child, and which is a, another of Jesus's teachings, right? And to have the mind of a child is to be in awe of our embedded reality, of our incarnational reality. Right. Um So hopefully you've. Rem- memorize this line since we keep repeating in one way or the other, but Christ's mind is saying, I am not you. I am not other than you. And if we take Jesus seriously, both historically and metaphorically, we can relate to him on a deeply personal level, as well as on the level of world transformation. Um, Edward Ettinger, who I think is a fabulous Arthur, Arthur, I sounded so Texan just now, author, (laughs) wrote a book about the Jungian, a Jungian commentary on the life of Christ. And what he says is that what we attend to in our own psyche impacts the collective. So everything that we attend to in our own personal transformation and liberation impacts the collective experience. That's interbeing. That's essentially interbeing. What Jesus understood that mainline Christianity did not take up is that the activity of God is always on behalf of the oppressed. So Jesus was for this God, and Jesus asked us to be for this God, and thus for the oppressed and disenfranchised. Liberation of the most marginalized is God's business. James Cone, a black liberation theologist, says that we can't even come to know this God unless we too are for the liberation of those at the furthest edges. And here's another thing Cohn says, the God of Jesus is not colorblind because if he were colorblind, he would be blind to justice and injustice. Jesus is about justice. And once we get that, if we are for Jesus, we will show up and make decisions for those on the margins as opposed to the establishment. Probably need to do some teasing apart by what we mean about the establishment to put that, put a pin in that.
0: Okay.
2: (laughs) Um, But when I first read James Cone, I kept wondering where does the white American middle-class Christian belong in liberation theology? So someone like me and whiteness too, must liberate itself from the establishment and align with freedom from oppression. When I say whiteness, I'm kind of talking about a structure of reality, what it has come to represent. And in our country, it's come to represent individualism, capitalism, personal salvation and superiority. We can be white and reject whiteness, which is not the same as rejecting the self. Even though in the first century, there really was not a construct of race and racism as far as I understand the history of race. um, But I think I can definitively say that Jesus was not about whiteness as it has come to be defined. To walk, Th- there was yeah.
1: definitely a trouble in caste system.
2: Absolutely, right. It, and those things evolved into race, racial right. hierarchies, right. right? So I think you know at, the, at that time the world was less intersectional. It was less um, international. There, were, people stayed where they lived, kind of, mm-hmm. right? Um, to walk in this way of Jesus, we too need to examine our commitment to it. We will not have transformation, and we won't have a democracy. If we can't get that, it must include those who are historically disenfranchised. Uh, Bell Hook says, she's a critical theorist and kind of philosopher, says that our our commitment to democracy requires constant revolution and evolution. So it requires attention and participation. Same with transpersonal transformation. It requires our participation. It doesn't just happen to us, but it happens between us and everything, it requires relationship and is a kind of mystical revolution. I've kind of I've been reading some books on uh, mysticism and social change or mysticism and social justice, and I love that um, you know that so often and we've talked about this and you've talked about this is that mysticism is associated with the kind of monk in a cave meditating, <laughs> but mysticism is also participation in the world. This collaboration of contemplation and action. And that's what I think Jesus pulls off so well, is being of a mystical mind, but being active in the world.
1: I think that uh, mysticism, when it comes to, and Richard Dore's daily meditations have been about this last couple of weeks. Uh, When it comes to Jesus, mysticism clearly means to me uh, that he was a non-dual,
2: yeah, he's what um, was, would be called a healed healer, right? And in that vein, it goes beyond individual fulfillment, and it alters the reality of the of the group that participates in this sort of healing mm-hmm. or transformation. It's a resistance to individualism. Um, Cornel West, who is also a pointed social critic, says. American culture is wrestling with a spiritual crisis because of our obsession with individual pleasure. When we get stuck there in individual pleasure, we develop this kind of tolerance for cruelty because we become willing to sacrifice someone else's well-being for our own. But love, he says, and this echoes the Jesus metaphor, to really know love, we have to learn how to die to ourselves, to our own personal pleasure which is the exact opposite message we get from our culture. And even from things like, um, you know, the th- theology that is about becoming wealthier and wealthier, right? Um, and th- this death to our separate self is exactly what Jesus taught. And I love that link between Jesus and Buddha or Jesus, the, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Buddhism.
1: You know that uh, I know I've referred to him a lot during this time today, but he is one of my shining stars when it comes to this sort of thing. Richard Rohr uh, has been devoting last week and this week his devotions and actually wrote a book about this uh, and has reissued it. It's been revised in light of the pandemic and in light of the racial unveiling Mm -hmm. that we have called um, Order, Order, Disorder, Reorder. Mm -hmm. And people who are committed to order and maintaining order, getting wealthier and having more and being secure, they don't enter into this disorder period, which we are being forced into Mm -hmm. right now, some reluctantly, because it's too painful.
2: It is painful, but this is, and that is where I think Cornel West is spot on. We have to die to something to become transformed by love. And that, and that, so, so many of us never enter the cave, right? We don't, because of that fear of pain. Right. We're going to find a whole lot of comrades in that cave if we actually enter in.
1: You know, one of, one of Jim Finley's great um, metaphors is that we travel along with Jesus for a while and we get to a point where he stops and he points to a cave.
2: Mm -hmm. You want me to go
1: in there? (laughs) <laughs> I'll wait out here, you it, go in. Right. And as we're going, he says, By the way, you can't take anything with
2: mm-hmm. you.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's a great metaphor.
2: Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I, uh, I think I un- disordered the si- the, that's last, okay. the slides. Speaking of disorder, <laughs> do you that's okay. a loop here?
1: <laughs> because uh, Michael Morewood has certainly influenced what you're about to hear. Yeah. In the first few hundred years, and no, yes, in the first few hundred years after his death, first decades, um, the teachings and deeds of the man Jesus were intelligible to those who followed him. They were uh, Jews. They knew Jewish scriptures and traditions. These things didn't make any sense to the Greeks and the Romans. So as the Christian faith spread out from Judaism, the message of Jesus, the message about Jesus got reformulated into the language and mindset of Greek and Roman gods. And that reformulation reached its climax in the church councils of the fourth and fifth centuries that resulted in the creeds that we say to this very day. Uh, Incidentally, as time passed, the incredible diversity that existed very early. We now know this because of documents that have been discovered back in the 40s called the Nag Hammadi Library and the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was incredible diversity in Christian movement in in the very beginning. Uh, But somewhere along the way, um, Christianity became something that someone believed Mm. rather than something one did. There's a critical shift at that point. And when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about trying to get back to not beliefs, but to behaviors. And what the behaviors are of what Holly's calling the beloved community, what Amuriku calls the empowering community. I think one of the the saddest things ever is that the biblical scholarship that has been going on since the mid-1950s has never made it, for the most part, into the religious education curriculum of most churches. And I hope what we have to say in the weeks ahead can make you curious about this question. How did the teachings from the mouth of this Galilean peasant Jew get to be believing that somehow he was God's son who had dropped down out of heaven for the sole purpose of dying on a cross to save people from their sins. One of the things that I want for me, and uh, I think this is what it means for me to be a Christian, is that I want to be affected in the same way that Jesus' followers were. I want to be able to apprehend sacred mystery in such a way in this man and his teachings, that it contributes to my ongoing transformation. And most people, even those who identify as Christian, I'm convinced have not met Jesus. And we hope to reintroduce him to you. So um, leaning heavily on the works of Michael Moore Wood, Marcus Borg, Robert Funk, Shelby Spong, John Dominic Crossan, Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I
2: like the I, am loving the liberation theologists too. Just people like liberation theology. Oh, liberation theology. Yeah. Who, who James Cohn. Yeah. Mary Daly. Um, there's a whole slew of recent and great liberation theology writings.
1: So leaning on these people, what can we say about Jesus? Well, one of the things that we can say, and then we we want to end up today saying how these things have applicability to us.
2: But this is a cataphatic way of defining Jesus, yeah. what he is, right? What he is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, we can say that he, he we can say that he was a sage. He was a wisdom teacher. He belongs to the wisdom tradition of ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. He was not a Christian. He was not a Greek philosopher. He was a Jewish prophetic wisdom teacher. And wisdom is not concerned with theories of sin and salvation. Wisdom is concerned with how do you cope with what's going on in your daily life. This is a very important way to see Jesus. Jesus is also a healer. Now, there were healers in the ancient world. Um, That's clearly attested. Jesus was also, uh, he taught an ethic of trust. Um, We don't live in that culture. We live in an ethic of work. Who's not heard of the Protestant work ethic? But not so for Jesus. He told his followers, don't worry about tomorrow. Get, Get your lesson from the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And as we will see when we go forward into the sermon, he clearly taught, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. Those are all wisdom teachings. The next thing that Jesus taught was our kinship to each other. We're going to find this over and over in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus talked about how we were brothers and sisters to each other and that he defined his family as those who were around him. It's really some radical stuff. Um, It's inspired a lot of people. It's troubled a lot of people. But consider his admonition. Love your enemies. That doesn't go over well in a culture that builds itself around identifying who's in and who's out. Jesus, um, Robert Funk, I got this from him, said, Maybe one of the most radical things Jesus ever said was, The sun shines on the just and the unjust. That did not fit with Jewish teaching. Because Jews believe that God blessed those who did the right thing, obeyed the law, and all of that stuff. And Jesus did not teach that. the The God of the Hebrews was a highly vindictive God. A God who really did divide who's in and who's out. And Jesus came along and said, you've misunderstood. And we'll find this again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard, quoting the law of Moses, but... I say unto you, and he inserts a new transforming initiative into the teachings that he gets from the the Jewish law. Um, Unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, you cannot be part of following me you're no disciple of mine. And what he meant by that was was that you've got to be willing to break the ties that bind you to a particular ideology or a social class.
2: You've said to me once, (coughs) sorry to interrupt, but that, you know, so many of the rules of our systems, including our family systems are these unspoken, taken for granted rules. And in some ways we have to learn how to individuate or be outside of those sort of expected rules we have to learn how to bend that, how to see what is, to see what's actually operating and then decide from a new place, is that what I want to operate in?
1: The beginning of spiritual wisdom is, is in what you just said. Mm-hmm. And I see um, archetype for it in the Abraham story mm-hmm. who left home. Mm. Mm-hmm. not knowing where he was going.
2: Yeah.
1: And Jesus who picks up that same theme in saying, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Yeah. He didn't have a home
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the way that we think about that. And he he instructed his disciples and apostles to have that same ethic and that same lifestyle of making your home with the people where you are. Mm-hmm. It's a radical teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, Holly, that it's not just that we inherit these unspoken rules. I think a lot of the rules that we get from our families are absolutely unconscious to us and we operate by them and are not aware that we're operating.
2: Well, think about how long generationally we've been handed a white Jesus, a white blue eyed Jesus, right? And then to go, what? (laughs) You know.
1: Uh, The teachings of Jesus are also marked by celebration and joy. Um, The Jesus that I was introduced to as a child uh, was a frightening figure who talked about the end of the world and how important it was to get your act together before that happens. But you will find in his stories and behaviors, things that are full of celebration and uh, joy and Parties and he was called a drunkard. Um, anyway,
2: I saw a play once, um, kind of a spoof, or I don't know if it was a spoof, but just another another take on Jesus and the disciples that they were just kind of a, a group of ravers who went from kind of party to party around,
1: <laughs> um, well,
2: and and the and it postulated that they were all a group of gay men.
1: Oh, some play. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can remember uh, years ago uh, standing in here and saying that one of the images that I had of Jesus mm-hmm. is that he was a stand-up comic.
2: Uh. <laughs> hey, Jesus, you want to go get a burger? And what? what would it, what's his reply? Consider the lilies of the field.
1: Something like that. Very abstract. Or there's soup in the attic.
2: Yeah. Uh, something
1: that makes okay.
2: No sense. <laughs> I
1: remember that um, I... I Pose a question, I quit doing this, but I used to pose a question. If Jesus were here, what would he say to us? And of course, there's no way of really knowing, but Rob Negrin was in class that Sunday and afterwards he came up and said, I know exactly what Jesus would say if he were here. Mm-hmm. And I said, really? What mm-hmm. would it be? He said, you want to go get Mexican? <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: right. <laughs> yeah. So, um,
1: and, and finally, the last thing I will say here is that Jesus was a man of great integrity. That's the primary meaning of the cross. Jesus died on the cross, not to save us from our sins, but because he was unwilling to compromise on his vision, which is to live nonviolently and to demonstrate the kind of rule that he thought God wanted people to be under. So how can these kinds of teachings be a guide for us through this traumatic time of pandemic and the writing of racial injustice and these are the things that holly and i will be returning to over and over in the the weeks ahead i hope that i don't have to spell these out i mean they're pretty obvious wisdom is about spiritual literacy we need to be literate about our tradition Uh, in the very beginning as i said being christian wasn't about believing. How did that happen? How did that come about? Trust is how we are to move into the future, not scared witless. We don't have to hang on to the mythic statements of the early church as literal truths. I am really grateful to our mothers and fathers in the faith who hammered out the first creeds. They were trying to make sense of their world just as we're trying to make sense of our world. But to hold on to their statements in any literal way, is like continuing to believe that the earth is the center of the universe. And further, let's celebrate that there's that there's nothing to fear in recovering the roots of our tradition. Trusting the God of Jesus means it's okay to follow truth wherever it leads us. We do not need to fight a rear guard action. That's not truth. And I also think This trust means knowing that what we come up with as faith statements today will be as provisional for future generations as the early statements are for us now. And of course, another thing that we can take from Jesus is the importance of integrity. And that goes along with trust. You can't be dishonest and trustful at the same time. So um, we live in a era of growing disinformation and we want to live with trust
2: Mm -hmm. something you said made me think also that you know we've stagnated some of these things we've kept them in the place where they were written or first evolved but these words these teachings I believe are meant to be dynamic and evolutionary right and so always in wisdom teachings we're wanting to make we're wanting to make them relevant. What do they say about today, not what did they say about 2000 years ago? And to become relevant, we have to be willing to hold that they evolve, that they are dynamic, not static. Thus God, Jesus is dynamic, not static, mm-hmm. right? Um, I love what you said about Jesus as an illustration of integrity and kinship and healing. And you're gonna get into some of the healing um, in a minute. And many of us are familiar with the healing stories of Jesus, but I think you'll deepen that understanding in some ways. Um, I think though, if we go straight to healing, we bypass sometimes the more radical or challenging teachings of Jesus, which is the, the telling the truth part, right? Telling the truth about what is. We, we want to be healed. I think that's like fundamental in us. We want to be okay. And if we bypass the truth though, we've, we've bypassed an important part of healing, which is sitting in discomfort. Being in the cave, if you will. But an antecedent, so an antecedent to healing, in my mind, would be truth-telling. We cannot heal without knowing and naming what we need to be healed from. Trauma, for example, a personal trauma or collective trauma is a bit like a hibernating bear. When something happens to us that is traumatic, it takes us out of our body. It's not forgotten, but it's stored away. The body remembers everything. In speaking the truth about trauma to the body, we have to then learn how to listen to the body, how to listen to the messages that are coming forth from the body. And you can use the body as a a metaphor for the whole and also for the individual experience, I think. Jesus seemed to have um, this kind of unique ability to dial into the body. Remember, he healed the sick and the blind. He helped them to listen to the truth about their own bodies to trust what they brought forth within them could also heal them. Have you heard that one before? Hmm? What you bring forth from within you can heal you.
1: You like that one. Yeah, word. I do. I
2: love it. <laughs> if I remember nothing else from Thomas, I'll always remember that one. Um, but there are lots of people claiming to speak truth from their pulpits, be they newsrooms or, you know, actual church pulpits. A lot of these words are disconnected from a bodily reality. They, Jesus spoke the truth about individual suffering, so he made us look at suffering. He spoke truth to the powerful establishment. And sometimes he spoke by saying nothing at all. He refused to prove his sort of pedigree to the establishment. When asked, who do you say that you are? He didn't answer. He, he, he didn't give them the satisfaction of proving his lineage. He could have said, I'm the child of God. They were looking for him to say, which God, which Roman or Greek God do you descend from? And he didn't say anything. He didn't answer. He just is like, my message is more important than who I am. So if Jesus were alive today, I wonder what truths do we imagine he would speak. I think he would say, don't leave the spiritual out of the political. Don't leave love out of a revolution. He would say, heal the collective body by remembering that we are not separate. Our commitment to separation to the individual over the collective is what keeps us from seeing this truth. So trauma in the individual body affects the whole, and that's also true in the community. When we minimize or deny that, we individually or collectively, then we remain separate and true healing can't occur. So I think one thing to be sure of is that Jesus is anti-establishment. He would be a prophetic voice speaking from a place of love for those bodies who are traumatized. And that's who he, I think, wants to call our attention to.
1: So I want to close our time today by talking about Jesus as healer. We need healing. There's no way you can look around at what's going on in our culture today without coming to understand that. We need healing. Our religious understandings need healing. Our country needs healing. I remember when I first started teaching about the Jesus of history years ago in here, Someone came up to me, a a guy who was a self-professed fundamentalist, and he said, what you're teaching scares me. And I want our teachings to equip us to deal with such fears. Over and over, Jesus said, and it's the message of the, the, the Hebrew tradition, fear not, do not be afraid. And so there are three fears that I think we need to be set free from One is what I'm going to call our biblical anxieties. You may remember some of you when Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, came out in 2004. I never saw that movie because what I read of it let me know that I uh, I did not want to be exposed to that much violence. What bothered me about the film, though, was that many people who saw it thought they were watching a documentary. What they were seeing was fiction. It is a fact that Jesus was executed, but we know almost nothing about what literally happened. The gospel accounts were not written by eyewitnesses. They were written years after the fact. Further, they don't agree with each other. The writers of these texts were for the most part influenced by Jewish thought as they were exposed to Jewish scriptures. Almost every verse of the crucifixion story can, uh, is taken from what we call the Old Testament. Now, don't misunderstand what I just said. They are not make-believe stories. They are make-believer stories. <laughs> There's a difference. The next healing we need is the one that will help us deal with what I call our God anxieties. One of the things we need to navigate uh, is one of the things we need to navigate this territory that we're in right now is mature people. That's one of the reasons that we hope that you will read When the Disciple Comes of Age. It's In looking for someone else to be in charge, whether it's a person or an institution or a political party, to tell us what to believe or how to behave, that's opened doors for tyrants to come in in our own time. The God of Jesus refuses to get involved in the way that we want that God to. It reigns on the just and the unjust. And of course, until we do our work to grow up, wake up, clean up, We're not gonna know this. And that is our primary responsibility to take care of ourselves. I think putting immature people in charge of what's going on in this country is like putting a billy goat in charge of a garden. Just look at the entitled exceptionalism that's going on about mask wearing in this country. And a lot of that is coming from evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just this week, Shane Claiborne tweeted, I don't understand Christians who refuse to wear a mask because they think God will protect them, but somehow they still need a gun. Mm -hmm. And though it may make some people anxious, let's put aside what I'm going to call Christ anxieties. That's another place where we need healing. Jesus has been turned into a Savior who's supposed to do for us what we're unwilling or unable to do for ourselves. And besides, it's in focusing on Jesus as Savior that separates us from each other. (coughs) It doesn't unite us. It doesn't bring us together. One of the most disturbing things about Christian fundamentalism in its various forms is that it looks forward to some future judgment out there where people will either be safe or sorry. We have a global and a national crisis right now. The Messiah we need is justice. The Messiah we need is kindness. And the Messiah we need is compassion. We need some intensive care for the planet. And for us to wait for some external magical force To bring compassion and justice about is a betrayal of the fundamental trust inspired by Jesus. Now, someone might ask, but don't people need Jesus?
2: Mm.
1: Well, yes, of course they do. But as I see what's going on in our country and our world right now, most of the time what a lot of people need is for someone to be Jesus to them someone to be Jesus for them. You'll have to decide this for yourself, but for me, the Jesus Jewish mystic, the wisdom teacher speaks more powerfully and directly to me and to the anxious, anguished world in which we live. He spoke simple truths, profound truths. He spoke in metaphors. He overstated things. He understated things. He used hyperbole, paradox, parody, and humor. Humor um, prevents us from becoming overly righteous. Uh, Ambiguity inhibits dogmatism. Both humor and humility are good defenses against arrogance. Have you ever known any really happy fundamentalists? I think not. (laughs) So join me and Holly in the weeks ahead as we gather here. Um, We're going to keep reintroducing Jesus, talk about his teachings. I think his teachings are ones that can heal our hurts and calm our anxieties. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I love
1: doing this with you. Me too. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious
0: cargo. So watch your step and we will see you here again next week.